The redundancy is to create some confidence and some legitimacy for an idea so that people in one group will start to believe this idea is actually relevant to them. And that's how innovation adaptation kind of spreads from group to group. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new episode of EEI's International Program Global Circuit Podcast. My name is Lawrence Jones, Vice President for International Programs. Our guest today is Damon Santola. He is the Elihu Katz Professor of Communication, Sociology and Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is the director of the Network Dynamics Group. Before joining Penn, he was an assistant professor at MIT and a Robert Wood Johnson Fellow at Harvard University. Damon, welcome to the Global Circuit. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here, Lawrence. Well, I'd like to start, Damon, by first of all, congratulating you on the book. It was written last year. I bought it last year and I, and I got through it and I was intrigued when I read it the first time, how you, know, how you were able to tie together so many things about network theory, but also the practical networks we have around the world. We'll get to that in, in a little in the conversation, but maybe just, you know, I give a little brief bio about yourself, but maybe tell us something about Damon that the audience should know, which perhaps drove you to write this book? I come from a, a PhD in sociology and also physics, which is a weird combination of fields to put together. Um, and I would say it probably started my interest in this area, you know, when I was really young. I, I grew up in a kind of a community of activists. And I was always sort of, you know, we were went to lots of marches for um, uh, social justice and, and civil rights issues, but also for like, anti-nuclear proliferation and, you know, all these kinds of issues that were big in the 80s. And um, and I think importantly, some have caught on and really made a difference and others haven't. And I think that as I sort of moved through high school and college, I noticed that some of the things that, you know, we marched for as a kid actually became mainstream and some of the things people had still never heard of. And so it kind of piqued my interest early on um, about this question of why why certain things are succeeding and taking off and why certain things aren't. And there was a literature on this, right? There are things on um, or topics about like what becomes contagious and what doesn't. And as I looked more um, into the scientific literature on this, I started noticing some inconsistencies in how, on the one hand, we had theories of spreading and of networks and virality, and on the other hand, our best science on things like the growth of the civil rights movement or the growth of sort of modern social change initiatives didn't seem to match up, you know, with our best theories. And that's really what sort of um, got me thinking very seriously as I entered grad school about whether we could do some serious uh, scientific analysis using the, our best uh, physical theories of networks and dynamics to try to get a grip on the sort of social process of change. Interesting. You, you talk about sort of the, you know, the activism and the demonstration uh, when I think of the title of the book, Change, How to Make Big Things Happen, the first thing that came to my mind was we're in the midst of climate change, one of the biggest uh, issues facing the world today, yeah. and a lot has to change. So, so talk a little bit about the contrast you make in the book about the spread of information as opposed to the spread of new behavior or new beliefs. Uh, tell us a little bit about how, how those two sort of... Uh, exist or how the two are different. Yeah, and this becomes really the one of the big central ideas um, of my work over the last decade is that uh, all of our, um, and when I say our, I mean like sociology, physics, computer science, economics, like the, the sort of intersection of the computational and social sciences, um, all of the theories we've been using uh, for the last several decades have relied on this idea that if you could just understand how information was spreading, you could then understand the rest of it where the rest of it is new product design, new you know, innovative ideas and social change. It was all kind of one big category. Um, and, uh, and what I started noticing is that the theories, uh, the network uh, models that were really good for describing um, information spreading were basically coming from epidemiology. They were basically saying, look, if we understand how a virus spreads, which is like, you know, the classic case people talk about is the measles, and then more recently, and you know, H1N1, and then of course now with COVID-19, it winds up being the same story, which is that if you come into contact with someone who's infected and you sort of talk face-to-face -to, -face to them without a face mask, you're gonna then get infected, and then you can spread it to somebody else. 
And this gives rise, and this is where there's an interesting connection between the science of epidemiology and kind of modern day marketing. This gives rise to really the concept of the influencer, because basically in epidemiology, you have this idea of super spreaders, which is people who interact face to face with a lot of different people, right? Or who get on planes and travel a lot. And if that person is infected, then they become a source of transmission, uh, transmission or a vector for infecting lots and lots and lots of people because of their vast number of contacts. Now, that idea that one person can infect a lot of people is basically assuming that things spread like a virus. But then we can take that idea and think about it in a social context and say, well, isn't that also how information spreads? One person becomes highly, you know, very well known and they talk to a lot of people. They become kind of a celebrity and they tell this sort of information to a lot of people. And that's how information spreads. And then wouldn't we just then make the same inference and say, well, isn't that how new products spread innovative ideas and social movements and so forth? And it turns out that there's actually a really clear line scientifically between, on the one hand, diseases and information for which like the viral story is true and the influencer story works pretty well. And on the other hand, behaviors that go against social norms, change that kind of challenges our existing ideas, innovations that require us giving up what we're already doing and doing something new. In essence, things that require us to sort of overcome a bit of resistance. And so the way that I talk about this is that information and disease are basically simple kinds of contagions. And then innovative products, new ideas, challenging social movements are basically complex contagions. And that one distinction between simple and complex winds up just shedding a tremendous amount of light on the world. Because then all of a sudden, we can look at the, the new data over the last 15 years that we've been getting on all the social change initiatives and all the product diffusion initiatives that succeeded. And we can see that the way they succeeded doesn't look anything like the way a virus spreads. In fact, the way they succeeded is almost the opposite. Instead of finding a highly connected person and spreading out, they tend to grow like in the niche edge peripheral clusters of the social network, you know, people who are not well known. And they grow from there and kind of establish what is essentially a critical mass. And so we have lots of examples of these kinds of things once we start to think about it. It turns out the growth of technologies like Twitter grew this way. They kind of took hold in little clusters and neighborhoods in San Francisco Bay Area and kind of grew and grew and grew. And over the course of several years, wound up generating a large enough critical mass that then they spread more broadly across the U.S. Um, and it's also true that this is how Black Lives Matter grew. It spread through these sort of clusters in different neighborhoods in this kind of local way and was largely viewed by, in mainstream U.S. as like a marginal movement and not supported. And then it reached a critical mass. And then, you know, really six years after the major protests, um, in 2014 in Ferguson, you have in 2020 nationwide and then worldwide protests in support of Black Lives Matter um, after George Floyd's death. And that, you know, would have been very hard to predict without this kind of science of how these change initiatives grow in, in networks. Interesting. And I think, you know, you, you talk about, uh, in the book, you talk about several different, or you give several examples of different movements, different uh, spread of information or spread of technology try to make the case between what I found interesting, the notion of weak ties versus strong ties, uh, or weak links versus strong links, if you may. Uh, talk a little bit about that, but I guess do that from the context of a few examples where the weak link was not necessarily what drove the change or what caused the, the, you know, the, the failure. Can you give a few examples of you know, where weak links, strong links made a difference? Yeah. I, the I'll start with the Twitter example because it's kind of a fun one in a sense uh, because it's so counterintuitive. We think of uh, technology like Twitter, obviously, it's an internet technology. Uh, people are connected through these you know, virtual ties that can fly in all directions, um, basically to people we don't know that well, not our friends and family who we think of as like our strong ties to people we trust and know really well, but our weak ties, kind of casual acquaintances, people we bump into, we may connect to just kind of to find out what they're doing, but we don't really know them that well. We certainly like you know, wouldn't lend them a large sum of money or ask them to watch our kids, right? So they're not the kind of intimate, strong ties we think of as sort of personal. Um, and so when you've got all these sort of connections that are, you know, ostensibly weak ties through a, a kind of technology like Twitter, you would expect then Twitter to spread in that way through lots of, you know, just random connections at airports and, and people meeting um, at clubs and so forth. But it turns out when you look at the data of the growth of Twitter, it's actually spreading through like very strong ties, neighborhood networks, friends of friends, close family, people who've known each other for years. And the reason is because 
who you are initially interested in, who you want to be connected to, and who can convince you that this technology is kind of worth your time are people who kind of know each other. You have one friend and a second friend and a third friend, and they're all kind of connected to each other in this new technology. And you say, oh, it might be worth my time. I'll join up too. And then you're part of this little network with those people. And then that spreads to like a nearby cluster or friends you all work with or friends you all went to school with. And so these kinds of interlocking networks of strong reinforcing ties create a kind of social redundancy that's actually really helpful for getting people to adopt new technologies that otherwise they'd probably just ignore. You had a few other examples in the book, uh, Damon, that, that I think the audience will find interesting to, to learn about. Uh, I, I was thinking specifically, obviously, Arab Spring was one example, but then the example of the British, the British uh, army when they were able to, you know, galvanize uh, uh, the, the, the army to go up in the First World War. Talk about that experience. I thought that was very intriguing how they went about using the idea of sort of uh, relevance, if you may, or, you know, it's who you know, and, and it's a network that helped you to build that. Can you just give us sort of an Arab Spring and then the British analogy of this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the case of Arab Spring, I think that we um, certainly, lots of people, and this was you know early early on studying at social scientists as well, um, but a lot of us had, there are a couple of names that kind of pop into the news as like people who were at the, the core of the sort of organizing groups. Um, and what's so interesting, again, and this is why the data are so incredibly useful now that we can see not just when things succeed, but we can also see when they fail. And that's crucial for science. If you can't look at failures, you can't see what's different between the successes and the failures. Mm -hmm. uh, one kind of, I think, poor mode of inference is to line all the successes up side by side and say, okay, what do they have in common? But it could have been the cases that all the failures had that in common as well, right? So what you're really looking for is differences. And what you can see with like something like Eric Spring is that highly connected popular influencers who are many times attributed with the success of later stages of a social movement tried early on to get revolutions going particularly like in egypt and tahir square and failed miserably nobody showed up and there was then a change between their attempts that failed and their attempts that later on succeeded which generated the the, the large protest that we saw unfold in egypt um and those changes are recorded in the social media data and what's different is that in the weeks between the failures and success, there were a lot of people who just regular folks and the kind of peripheral actors who started to show interest and excitement and support for this idea that there would be sort of a large scale movement, a pushback against the government, and that it would be, you know, in, in the form of a, a revolutionary protest. And that discussion is actually what fomented the kind of energy that then when the on January 25th, the Here Square protest finally took off, led to like 10,000 and then 100,000, right? This massive growth of people showing up, which then, you know, toppled the dictatorship. Um, and it was really interesting to see the difference between the narrative that we tell, which is, well, the highly connected influencer was part of the second story too, but she was also part of the first story where it failed. And the difference between the first story and the second story is the is this sort of engagement of people out in the peripheral right networks, and it's really just this this very powerful and kind of surprising role played by like regular people, because if you want anything at scale, you're looking at regular people, you're looking at people who have different personal considerations, different time constraints, different kinds of you know loyalties and obligations. A lot of them are older, they have family, they have parents they have to take care of, they have kinds of things that like young energized activists may not have to deal with. And so you should take into account, like, what are the real constraints on regular folks? And once those regular folks start talking to each other and saying, yeah, I have all the limitations and constraints you do. I have concerns about having a job. I have to take care of my kids. I have to worry about my parents. But I still think this thing is important to participate in. Mm -hmm. These people are really relevant to each other. They're really listening to each other in a way that the activist can't really reach them because everyone knows that the activist is an activist. They know that that person is young and energized and most of their life energy goes to the cause. But the folks who are regular know that their life energy is dispersed over all these other obligations. But if they can energize each other, then that becomes a very powerful signal for other people who are in the periphery of the network. Um, there's a similar story yeah, around the, the this is in Britain, um, mobilizing a large volunteer, largest, <laughs> the largest volunteer uh, army um, in British history. And what they did there was uh, essentially have to overcome 
what was this norm, which was that certain classes didn't really enlist in the army and other classes did. And there was a very clear sort of boundary socially between like what you're expected to do um, and what the sort of um, uh, needs of the country were, which is to say there were strong social norms that like, you know, the aristocrats became officers and, you know, laborers might become enlisted men, but regular people and kind of the professional classes didn't typically like enlist in the army. Um, and there was this huge push to, you know, grow, um, and, you know, at the beginning of, of World War One, a large volunteer army in Britain. And the challenge was that, you know, the, the German army, the Prussian army was, it was like, I think 10 to one in terms of like the size and they were also professionally trained, whereas um, the British army was going to be volunteer recruits. So there was like this really um, stark disparity in the size and the martial capacity of these two armies um, and Britain knew it. And so they were trying to do this broad recruitment. And it was just failing. And so it was this, it was a social mobilization problem faced by the government. And what they did was turn to a strategy that's kind of surprising, which is they said, instead of just, you know, telling everyone it's their duty and obligation and, and having all these sort of, you know, messages sent out uh, universally across the country, which they've been doing, it wasn't working. They said, let's, let's shift focus and actually target like small neighborhoods and their social networks. And what was so interesting about this is they called them the PALS battalions. And what they essentially did was to say, well, if you join up, the people from your neighborhood who also join up will be with you in your battalion and they'll fight side by side with you. So it became kind of like a buddy system. And what it wound up happening was this really strong um, shift from lots of social resistance to you know participating in the war to a kind of um, collective energy, both, you know, it became very legitimate within communities for everyone and their friends to join together. Right. So it was kind of a social reinforcement process, but also there was energy behind that. Like they energized each other as a group in a way that like an individual responding to a poster just wouldn't feel as energized. Um, and so what you got were these sort of almost competitions where one town would raise a group of young men and then other towns would see that and they would feel competitive and raise another group of young men and so on and so forth. And this obviously became like famously effective for you know mobilizing the entire country. Um, and it's it's interesting because it's so counterintuitive that the way to mobilize at scale is to use like local friendship networks. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, a really, a really effective story. It, it is. And, you know, one of the things I thought about elsewhere, given where the world is today, obviously, we have the situation with the pandemic and we have the need to take vaccine and you have different campaigns in different parts of the world to get people to get vaccinated. And I was just thinking perhaps. Uh, People should have called Damon and get his suggestion on how to how to get people to agree to be vaccinated, um, you know, to to move forward on this uh, this issue about the vaccine and dealing with the pandemic. I I'd well, like I can, to. I can. Do you want me to respond to that? Because sure, there is something. Yeah, please do. Some, I would say just as a footnote, it's um, that is I would say one of the nice advantages of having written this book now is that um, people now they weren't of course they didn't know about this because the book wasn't out, but now that they do, they they of course are calling and these are their conversations I'm having with the State Department and also abroad, um, mostly with the NGOs who are like fairly concerned about how they can do this on the ground. And there's uh, one chapter in which I talk about some of these initiatives being deployed overseas, in particular. Um, some of the questions about innovation adoption in sub-Saharan Africa. So we talk about the Malawi example, where, you know, the frustration I think that a lot of innovators face is, well, there's this very hard problem to solve. People's lives are affected by it. And and we've solved it. Here's the product. Here's the strategy. Just now use it and you know you'll make more money, your food, you know, you'll make more food, your family will be happier. What's you know, what's stopping people? And what they notice is that just because you have a solution doesn't mean people actually use it, right? And that barrier between like an available solution and widespread adoption is exactly where this book lands, is saying, yeah, the vaccine is a great example of something where like there's a solution to a massive problem, a life-threatening pandemic, but yet people aren't using it. So how do we cross that chasm? And the answer is when you see that, you're dealing with social norms. 100% of the time, that's what's going on. You know, people's beliefs about what's acceptable and what's credible. And they're looking to their people around them to help make that decision. And so the question is, well, if networks now become this obstacle for an innovation kind of penetrating and spreading in a population, then what can we do about that? Because that's where people live and breathe. That's where they work. That's where their families are. Well, the strategy here is to turn those social networks instead of into an obstacle into your ally. How can we, how can we, target those networks, find the right places in those networks where we can grow support, and that support will mushroom into a critical mass. 
And that sounds like, well, it's nice theoretically, but how do we do that? And this is where the morality example is nice. So a bunch of economists said, we, you know, we have this planting technique that would be much more efficient than the current planting technique they're using in Malawi. In fact, the current technique is, is leading to massive soil erosion and the production of food is like, you know, a fifth of what it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and Malawi's got really fertile land and it's got like, you know, a lake all down one side of it. They shouldn't have any problems with food production and yet they do because they're using this planting strategy. Why aren't people adopting the new strategy? So the government put in place basically the standard influencer model. They found the most charismatic people and got them to you know, adopt and then talk about this new method of planting. Um, and what they found you know, years later was that no one was using it. And so these economists, um, based on some of the, the scientific papers I'd published before writing this book, took this theory and they said, you know, we should be able to go into Malawi and basically do an experiment where we take 200 different villages and divide them. And so in 50 villages, we'll use the good old fashioned influencer strategy. In 50 villagers, we'll use this kind of complex contagion strategy where we pick specific households to use and target them as going to be our sort of our innovators to adopt this farming technique. And we'll see over the course of four years whether it actually spreads. Um, and the results are stunning, where like once you sort of get those social network data in the villages, which is a you know monumental task, it took them years to do this project. But they can actually then show if you target different spots in the, in the network village, you can actually grow support for understanding of and ultimately adoption of this new planting strategy across different farms. Um, and so it's a really kind of nice illustration of how you can target networks effectively in these kinds of contexts where you would say, how do we even get off the ground? Well, now we have strategies. And so one thing I'm doing is talking with um, NGOs who do the kind of vaccine interventions you're talking about. And saying, well, we actually have a bunch of data from all these studies people have done, and the Malawi study is one of them. Um, let's just use those and start them as our reference point for how to, uh, you know, in intervene with with new strategies for supporting vaccination. Hmm. It's fascinating, and you know, you talk about vaccination. I, I, you know, I couldn't help when I was reading the book, the story about Korea and uh, and how they got the issue around, you know, birth control and. And contraceptives and spreading that information back into the same idea of looking at the, um, you know, looking at the the network and looking at that little cluster, if you may. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the what you call change makers playbook, and and I want you to specifically maybe shed some light on some of the tools. Specifically, you mentioned uh, the issue around bridges, and and why are bridges important, and then also get into this whole conversation around. Um, you know, the question of relevance. I think, uh, you know, those two are, I found very intriguing and maybe you can give one or two examples around breaching, especially and whether the wide bridge or the narrow bridge, which one is more important in the context of dealing with networks? Yeah, so the, the question of, um, you know, the playbook is really based on this idea of what I call a contagion infrastructure, which is to say, um, we often look at uh, situations where innovation fails to spread or a campaign doesn't work. And what we do is we go back and look at the innovation itself and say, what was wrong with it? How can we retool it? How can we make it sexier or you know, more contagious, more fun, more whatever? Um, and uh, my view is that oftentimes that's a mistake. Oftentimes the innovation is fine. What's wrong is that we haven't sort of looked at the social networks in the right way and haven't perceived like where the source of resistance is. And so really thinking about your organization or the population of customers that your organization serves as some kind of um, networked web and then saying, well, how can I use that web as an infrastructure for supporting a contagion dynamic? And so partly I talk about this within organizations. Oftentimes you see that um, divisions are highly balkanized, like the people in engineering don't really talk to people in design. They don't really talk to people on the manufacturing side. They don't talk to people in marketing, right? So they're kind of each in their own little group. Um, and one of the kind of business 101 techniques that's been taught to people since the early 90s is, you know, brokerage is the idea that like a person can be very entrepreneurial and they can go from engineering and they can make ties to design and they make ties to manufacturing and make ties to marketing and they can be someone who um, makes lots of these sort of weak links right across an organization. And in doing so, they actually get a lot of power because they become known as the person who's, you know, the kind of mover and shaker and knows what's going on in all parts of the organization. And that has been viewed as a beneficial thing. And certainly from the point of view of information flow, it's beneficial because you're saying groups that were disconnected now have a link across them. 
But from the point of view of innovation and adaptation, it's not as desirable for a couple of reasons. One, just because you have someone telling you about a new thing, you information spreading from like, let's say engineering over to design, doesn't mean that design people feel like that's particularly relevant to them or they're gonna to wanna to adopt it because it may even seem foreign. Like that's fine, the engineers are doing that thing, but like we're not engineers and we do our things differently. And so the question is, well, how would you get an innovation or a new kind of you know, normative practice? And I also talk later in the book about um, uh, some of the issues around um, the treatment of women and sexual harassment and, and, and unequal pay in organizations and how that normative belief also has to spread in many ways um, across different groups and organizations in order to change organizational culture. And so the question of innovation, adoption, and adaptation and norms all become sort of part of this larger question of organizational culture and how it changes, which I think a lot of people worry about um, in, in, in different contexts. And it turns out that the strategy that's been most popular, which is become a broker, create lots of weak ties, actually prevents the kind of innovation um, and normative change that we'd like to see. Because essentially what, what a broker does is try to keep their ties exclusive. Because the more ties there are from engineering to design, the less power that broker has as the exclusive person who controls information flow. And so it's in their advantage to actually maintain this network and make sure no one else has that network because that gives them a sort of um, lift within the organization. And it also means, because of their exclusivity, that they leave the organization, all those ties disappear and all that infrastructure disappears, right? So there's no kind of redundancy. And that's also kind of where the, the broker's power comes from. So what you really want to do is start thinking differently about organizational ties. They're not really just to advantage a single person who has the ties. Really what you want to do is think about it at the kind of the group level, which is to say, how can the engineering team become more integrated with the, with the marketing team and with the design team? How can we create, instead of one tie between a single person or an entrepreneur, multiple ties across these groups? And this is really the concept that has eluded social science for 50 years, is that a bridge actually has width in addition to length. So you can say, wow, this bridge spans two groups that are far apart, they, they never talk to each other. But you can say, well, how wide is that bridge? Is it a narrow bridge? Is it just one link wide? Or are there lots and lots of redundant ties? Now, for the point of information, you're like, well, what do we need all that redundancy for? We, one person can tell another person the information spreads. The redundancy is to create some confidence and some legitimacy for an idea so that people in one group will start to believe this idea is actually relevant to them. And that's how innovation adaptation kind of spreads from group to group. So you start to think about this, not just between like engineering and design, but then between design and marketing, and engineering and marketing and so forth. And you start to think about it as like all of these bridges between these different groups. And that creates a really sort of broad conception of an infrastructure within an organization. Now, when I describe this in the abstract, it can seem sort of like, yeah, that would be nice to have, I'm not sure how you do it. But we've got lots of great examples of exactly how this was done and where it worked. So one of the famous ones is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, I think um, many people don't know that part of the major reason for Silicon Valley success is they violated the classic model of organizations that had dominated in the U.S. previously, which was that, you know, an organization is kind of a self-contained organism and everything happening inside the organization is owned by that organization. And there's very high walls around it, basically pre preventing uh, loss of IP um, and prevent and sort of maintaining autonomy. And what the, the companies in Silicon Valley started doing was like opening their doors and letting competitors come in and sort of have interaction within a certain you know product launch or a certain kind of um, product design phase where there would actually be like direct interaction and partnership with competing companies because they realized that to go to market with this you know HP and Pyramid and um, Apple and in some cases Microsoft they realized that to go to to go to market effectively with these um, kinds of products, you actually needed more kinds of knowledge than they had within their walls. And so the kind of knowledge sharing became a really effective way of growing this sort of uh, collective synergy across uh, company boundaries. And so if you look across companies, so I was talking a minute ago about boundaries within organizations, so networks across divisional units. But in Silicon Valley, now the units are, are companies, and now there's wide bridges across the companies themselves, and that creates an infrastructure not for a company, but an infrastructure for an entire industry. It winds up being extremely productive. It generates huge amounts of innovation and also adaptation, right? They can move very fluidly. Um, as new ideas come in, everyone gets sort of brought along with them. 
Um, and it turns out that the Human Genome Project, act, you know, had to solve this problem too because they had a lot of labs who were part of this project. They were working internationally, and these labs were all they came in as competitors. These were labs who were all competing for the Nobel Prize every year. They were you know, doing their own independent thing. You need to figure out a way so that the information developed by one lab um, and the problem-solving strategies could be shared so that the protocols were replicable in other labs. So we could do like serious science and not just everyone developing their own niche thing because you needed to solve so many problems simultaneously. The only way to do it was that everyone could be responsive to everyone else's solutions in this kind of creative way. And so they created these sort of wide bridges across boundaries that were you know, traditionally very high. People are specifically worried about, you know, innovations that could lead to, to um, not just Nobel Prizes, of course, but patents as well. And all of a sudden, the Human Genome Project kind of flourished through these sorts of networks where scientists would go in groups and visit each other's labs and establish sort of communication channels across these different uh, research centers that were um, unprecedented in the history of these kinds of research groups. And, and they succeeded in mapping the human genome in like, you know, a decade. It was, it was very, very impressive in terms of the speed and effectiveness with which they did it. Um, and as I mentioned, then one of the, the sort of concepts here of relevance comes to bear, which is to say, if you just create wide bridges between two groups, but those two groups don't know anything about each other and don't have any reason to interact, then the bridge itself is kind of, um, uh, maybe as fallow. It's, it's not clear what you're going to do with it, right? Um, it's not clear how it's going to be used. And so part of what people are looking for when they're looking for these ties is to say, are those people working on a similar thing as we're working on and how relevant are they to us? Now, bridges can help create that relevance, but that relevance is also helpful at the outset. So there's kind of a, a, a change in relevance as people are more connected, but the initial connections sort of rely on it. And one of the examples I like a lot um, is the the growth of Black Lives Matter because it's again the kind of thing that without this kind of science would be impossible to predict. You know, there's no way you could sit there and say, you know, if you looked in 2012 and looked at the protests, you know, that were happening in different parts of the country, there were small protests, and most Americans thought they were basically an annoyance. They thought that they thought the protesters were wrong. They're like, no, there's no problem with police violence. These people were just criminals, and you know, you're upset about it personally because you knew them, but like actually, there's no problem here. Um, and even in 2014, um, you know, in, in Ferguson, uh, with the, you know, there was the, really the, the, the initial protest that, that got Black Lives Matter, you know, from something that had like 48 tweets to something that had like a million tweets, it became like a, a well-known, well-recognized phenomenon. Um, what started happening there after Ferguson, so different, and this is really what sets the stage for, for 2020 and the protest for George Floyd is what happened at Ferguson, is that the social media networks, and again, the data here are so valuable for being able to see this. Um, we're, we're prior to 2014, we're basically a bunch of you know disconnected groups. You had black youth talking about these issues of police violence. You had um, white liberals talking about these issues. You had celebrities talking about these issues. You had activist groups like Anonymous talking about these issues, but they were each talking about them in their own conversation bubble. And there were no, you know, occasionally someone would retweet something from another group, but there really wasn't any kind of wide bridge between these groups, which meant that the style of their conversation, the language they used, the way they talk about it was different in each group, right? And this is one of the sort of things that the book goes into later on is just how important the way we talk about things is for the capacity to mobilize. Because a term like Black Lives Matter was floating around since 2012, but it just didn't, it didn't land because people were talking about lots of different ways of interpreting what was happening. What happened in Ferguson was that all of a sudden, the network connections online started to get wider between these groups who had never really talked to each other. And by virtue of those connections, people started to talk about things in the same way. So everyone's language started to shift. And this is a, I mean, there's a whole story in the book about how this unfolds temporarily. It's a very interesting story. I don't have time to go through all of it now. But um, one of the other things that happens is that mainstream media who had their own take on what was happening in these different sort of seemingly isolated events in different towns, used that take to then interpret what was happening in Ferguson. And the very special thing that happened then was because these wide bridges were forming and people were becoming more empowered through these online networks, they started responding directly to mainstream media. So there were like these Twitter channels between CNN and citizens in Ferguson walking in the streets. And they were saying, no, you've got it wrong. That's a, that's a we're not a mob. Right. We are citizens protesting. 
And so that framing of it that, that mainstream media originally used in the first couple of days of like, you know, mob riots in Ferguson, by the end of the first two weeks, they were talking about citizen protests in Ferguson. That's extremely powerful. And that's the kind of thing that by the end of like, you know, four months later, then the White House is involved in this conversation. And that happens because these networks allow lots of different groups to all of a sudden converge on like a single interpretation and view of what all these different people are experiencing. So what happens subsequently that's so special is now that this network is formed, then the next time that one of these uh, killings happens, then that is incorporated into the conversation that's now established, as opposed to being yet another independent incident. It's part of the larger conversation of Black Lives Matter. And that was the extremely powerful shift in 2014 that then gave rise to kind of the national and then worldwide recognition of the problem in 2020. It's interesting because I think the point I find very intriguing here is the need for bridges to be built, not just uh, long, but now not narrow, but also, you know, in length, but also in breadth, right? Making sure you right. have a wide, wide, uh, wide bridge. And, and I think for where we are as a world today with all the polarization that needs to be greater bridges built to address that. We're going we're gonna to soon come to a part where I want to talk about climate change and, and, and maybe have you just reflect on you know, the complexity in changing how we live, how we produce, deliver and consume energy or how we deliver or produce anything for that matter, the kind of changes we have to do. But before we do that, I wanna to go to the, the last part of the book where I think the reader will find it interesting, at least I did, where you start to talk about um, social networks for discovery and you were able to tie in Broadway. I found that very interesting. Just tell us a little bit about the whole Broadway connection and how discovery was enabled by the clusters that were created in, in the context of Broadway for those, because you won't make the connection if you don't think about it, like Broadway, Twitter, right. social media, technology <laughs> diffusion, where's the link? Tell us about Broadway, how it fits into this, into this story. Yeah, th that really goes back to a bunch of work done by uh, some sociologists in 2005, 2006. Um, and they had initially just, you know, were interested in creativity. Um, and there's been a long literature, you know, about networks and creativity for, you know, decades. Um, and they were thinking, well, it's usually talking about like management, innovation, you know, within organizations, and engineering departments. What does this have to do with creativity in the arts? And so they, they did this like really careful study where they looked at the networks of Broadway and how they evolved from like the 40s through the uh, late 80s. Um, and they tracked the sort of structure and how it changed and how that mapped onto um, awards and also on to um, overall sales. So basically the productivity of the Broadway industry as a function of the connectedness of the Broadway industry. So this is really clever work. Um, and when I was developing my own thinking on you know, innovation and discovery, I also started from looking at engineering teams and how they solve like hard, complex problems and looking at you know, some of the experiments we did by creating like data science competitions and connecting teams in different ways. And so that was my reference point too. Um, but thankfully this other work had already been done and I, I had a, there was a natural connection between some of the thinking on um, designing organizational teams and some of the thinking on like the growth of industries of, of basically creativity in the arts. And um, what's nice about it, and this is where you feel like there's some satisfying grounding for you know, being able to do real, real sociology in the real world, is that the, um, the underlying networks they were finding that was supporting the growth of Broadway mapped like perfectly onto the networks that I was finding were really effective for generating um, creative and innovative teams within organizations, um, specifically on you know, engineering um, uh, uh, teams. And so, uh, so what I started to do was to think about, okay, how, how do those things connect and how does the story of when the Broadway has its highest moments and its lowest moments, how does that connect to the things we can do as managers to create teams and design um, uh, strategies really within organizations for amplifying creativity and for keeping us, you know, on our toes when it comes to innovating. And, you know, one of the key ideas there is that one of the mistakes we almost always make is that we choose organizational structures that allow us to converge very quickly on familiar solutions. Um, and it turns out that familiar solutions are simple contagions, right? They're things that like when we see them, we kind of recognize them, we kind of get them, they're easy to adopt. It turns out that innovative solutions 
often we don't recognize them right away as as good solutions. When we first see them, we first encounter them, they really aren't performing as well as the stuff we're familiar with. And it's because they're they're much more complex and the nuances required to get them to work require us to kind of think beyond the box of what we're familiar with. And so what the kind of big take-home lesson uh, winds up being is that when innovation succeeds, it's because the people who are working on the innovative ideas were basically protected. They weren't exposed early on to all of the other solutions that people were using. They were given time to kind of develop their idea, which if you compared it to the familiar stuff early on, the innovative stuff can't compare. It's not as good. But given time to develop that idea and to really flesh it out into something mature, then eventually it shows, in some cases, not just to be a very good solution, but like the optimal solution. Um, and that was kind of the amazing things we discovered in some of our experiments where, you know, we gave these these teams of data scientists only 15 minutes to solve these enormously hard problems with like 15,000 possible solutions. And, you know, uh, in, in the structures where people could share simple contagions effectively, no one ever found the optimal solution and often didn't even find very good solutions. And in the structures where we put, you know, we, we structured the team network so that they would have more of a, a clustered, strong tie feel to them. Um, all of a sudden, you know, like half the groups discovered the optimal solution for the problem set, which is in 15 minutes, like really striking. Um, and what's happening in all those cases is you're kind of protecting the creativity and the, um, the uniqueness of some of these ideas so that they can kind of uh, catch hold and spread. Um, and that actually maps on really well to the times when Broadway was like at its most productive, was it had those kinds of networks as well. So how should an individual listening to you um, think about their personal network, right? I, I think, um, I mean, the book does an excellent job in looking at networks, portraying them. You know, you talk about the fireworks uh, approach and you talk about the fishing net in terms of the network being, you know, one that is there. But just for, from, for an individual, uh, what, how should they take the message of this book in terms of their own personal network? Should I make my network more of a fishing net or should I make it more of a fireworks? I mean, talk a little bit about a practical application for an individual. Then we'll come back and talk about climate change. Sure. Um, I know it's funny. We, we even haven't, haven't talked about energy, energy, energy examples yet. Um, there's a whole discussion in the book about energy examples. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, well, there's two ways of thinking about your role as an individual. One is um, when a, a movement comes along and you're located in the right part of the network, you know, how do you how do you know to get involved in it or, or you know, that it's like your time, your moment. Um, and the second part is like, what can you do strategically? Like, are there ways in which you can interact with networks or make choices on social media or make choices in your organization that are meaningful? Um, and the second one is the one that I focus on mostly in the book. I say, look, if you're if you're thinking about, you know, using your networks to get ahead in your organization, here are some strategies that you're usually taught from like business 101 books. And I want to suggest those strategies are short term effective for getting some attention and long term self-defeating for actually initiating change. And so here are some other strategies for networking, for, you know, starting starting meetings across teams, um, starting, you know, relationships across different units where you're actually going to be more effective if you adopt these strategies for building wider bridges. And that's going to help you be more effective when it comes time to, to sort of really innovate for the organization. Um, so, so those kinds of strategies I outline in the book as sort of networking techniques you can adopt. But I think the other question you're asking is, well, let's say I'm not a strategic networker. I'm just kind of a person in a conversation. What can I do? Um, one of the things I emphasize toward the end of the book, um, and I use this example of um, – uh, one of President Obama's uh, speeches, he when we were at MIT, he gave this sort of nice talk about, um, you know, being a leader in the kind of complex world and how, you know, we tend to believe that like the most educated, you know, high level people are going to be the best people for decision making. And he really pushed back on that idea and in many ways was talking about how to get the network periphery into the conversation. He was like, look, there's there's a lot of good ideas out there and they're just kind of hidden. And so I, as a leader, feel responsible for trying to bring them into the conversation because they're going to make me smarter. And so he talked about this idea of like, you know, the, the high level people sitting around the important table. And he, he's got a, a nice sense of humor when he talks about, you know, it all, it all felt very important. There's a big wooden table with these high leatherback chairs and, you know, it all felt very presidential, he said. <laughs> um, 
and uh, and he's like everyone sitting around the you know the table are like you know these are major people um, thinking about you know big topics and then you've got the 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 sort of edges of the room like in, basically in the shadows lined with all the staffers whose job it is to get all the data put together reports and like give them to the high you know um, the higher ups and his point was look those people in the, in the edges of the room who never talk are the only people actually looking at the data. Because the people sitting on the table don't have time. So they look at these like briefings, which are distillations, and then they make some recommendation based on their intuitions. And his view is, look, there may be information that that staffer who doesn't really know all the high level stuff, but they know that data really well, that that staffer can contribute just based on like what they've seen you know, sort of on the ground. And so what he would do is call on those people and bring them into the conversation, which I imagine it was terrifying for those staffers to actually speak in those meetings. Um, but <laughs> it's an interesting way of thinking about what a person can do, right? So he wasn't trying to rearrange networks, but in a way he was. He was he was basically saying, let's bring this voice that's not part of this conversation into the conversation. Um, and it, it really made me think about what we can do like on social media, like just folks, right? We're all part of these networks and we see conversations flying by. And you also notice people who aren't talking that much right who aren't as vocal as some other people and a really straightforward thing to do is to like try to bring other people who are less vocal into a conversation and that's a simple thing but the more that you do it you're actually in some way changing the structure of the network of the conversation um, and that can be interesting just in terms of the information that's brought in but it actually can change the sort of quality of the direction the conversation goes in I'd like to spend the last moments we have together here, maybe another 10 minutes, uh, Damon, talking about climate change and what do we have to change and how do we go about applying the concepts of uh, change as you've laid out in the book, talking about networks. Uh, we haven't got into bias and belief and willingness, but you might find a way to include that in the conversation. Hmm. But climate change is certainly one that will require uh, one of those complex contagion that you talk about because yeah. it's not a simple issue, right? So you have an opportunity, Damon, you're sitting in a room with all the world leaders and you got five minutes to sort of get them to understand how networks and the concepts in this book and the ideas you've uh, put forward can help them to sort of bring about the necessary change we need to be able to address climate change. Um, it's a big tall order to carry it out, but maybe you can sort of just narrow it down to what you talk about in the book as the five or the seven strategies. How should one apply the theories in this book or the concepts in this book to really address, to begin to address climate change? Because it's not something you can address just by one, one, one approach. That's right. Um, and so th this conversation has started. So after the book came out, as you know, we just had the Glasgow uh, meeting. Um, and uh, the, the, one of the directors of the UN offices um, contacted me prior to the meeting and said, are there lessons I can take from this book that I can bring to Glasgow that would be useful? Um, so this, yeah, this basically, so this is the five minute distillation. And I think that the, um, one of the most useful punchlines really has to do with this question of when you bring people to the table that are committed to their partisan views, right? Um, so they've got these sort of reasons and in many cases ideologically for seeing things a certain way. Um, something that we often don't appreciate is that it's not just that they're going to argue a point differently, it's that they actually literally see the data differently. So I talk about this, the study we did in, in, the, in the chapter on bias, where I say, look, you know, we gave people, instead of saying, you know, what do you think is happening with climate change? We just give them the actual data from NASA and said, this is what's happening with climate change. Like here's Arctic sea ice over the last 35 years. And you see it going down, 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 down. Now it's noisy, so there, it's you know the, the the graph bumps around, and the question is, okay, if you give this to 1,200 Democrats and 1,200 we do this with 2,400 people, 1,200 Democrats and 1,200 Republicans, and say, what do you see? It turns out, looking at that exact same graph, the Democrats are like, oh yeah, Arctic sea ice is going down. The Republicans looked at it and they're like, oh yeah, Arctic sea ice is going up. It's increasing. It's recovering. So that is where we're starting from. We're starting from a not like a thick ideological argument about policies, we're starting from the basic question of looking at the data, what is the truth? And people can't even see that. And that's what's so interesting. It's like that feels insurmountable to people, right? They're like, well, how do we start a conversation if we can't even agree on the facts? And that's where I feel like the dynamics here of social influence and, and networks become so interesting because they really do change what we see. 
So the experiment was a direct test of that. We put the Democrats and Republicans into these networks together with wide bridges, and then we had them just talk about what they think the graph is saying. Um, and if you make certain assumptions about that conversation, it totally backfires. And everyone, you know, everyone comes you know, more entrenched in their position. But if you create that conversation in the right way, and I'm gonna, I'll be specific by what the right way is, um, what you see is a remarkable shift in people's interpretation of the data itself, of like what is actually happening with Arctic sea ice. And so if you do it the wrong way, basically you tell everyone, you, you know, you're, you're a Republican talking to Democrats or you're a Democrat talking to Republicans. You basically, you announce party identities and then you put things like little graphics on the screen. And this is something that CNN actually does regularly where when someone's talking at the talking heads, they put little logos underneath the person. They say, here, this person's a Democrat, this person's a Republican. So the study shows that that is an extremely um, unhelpful thing to do. Uh, it winds up creating uh, a sort of interpretation of whatever that information is that's strongly partisan biased. Um, and this is not through anyone's fault. It's just like, it's a function of the, those graphics affecting the signal. You're interpreting the information differently. So we did this with like just people looking at a graph, but it's also true with people talking. Um, and so what we did is we removed those labels from people's identity, and then we removed the, um, the logos from the screen. And we just said, okay, now let's have people talk about this stuff. Um, and all of a sudden what you saw was a collective shift. These are different groups, obviously, but in these groups, we saw this shift from, again, original polarization on the views and it's going up versus it's going down to not only less polarization, but essentially complete agreement. And what's so interesting is the accuracy of people's ability to predict what the trend was in Arctic sea ice didn't just come to like, well, now everyone's agreeing and everyone's about 70% accurate. Both groups got up to about 90% accuracy, which means the Democrats improved and the Republicans improved. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's so striking is that like, it's not just that the Democrats are teaching the Republicans, it's that there are ways that both groups actually learn from each other through this process. And as both groups started to revise their opinions, everyone's opinions got more accurate and they both came away with like a very high, and I would say unexpected level of understanding of what the graph was saying. Now, because 90% accuracy is for the lay public is, is unusual. Um, and it was just as a result of these structured interaction networks where some of the you know, priming and, and partisan features were just removed. And so what this tells us is key is that people really can change their interpretation of the facts. And that's the basis for doing anything for any policy is like knowing what the facts are. And we can do that. We can change that. But we have to make really conscious decisions about how that conversation takes place. Because if you just throw people into a politicized space and have party logos and graphics and memes everywhere, like we do in social media, then like you can pretty much expect them to become polarized and we can show that experimentally. But if you remove that stuff and have the effective wide bridge conversation, something very special happens that would be hard to predict without this kind of science. I think it's interesting where, as you were speaking, I was thinking about a focus group where you bring people together, you will not reveal their political identity and you will just have them respond to different questions. And then after the fact, you come back and reveal what it was just to see how the biases that is brought just by saying at the outset what these political ideologies are creates what like you're saying this sort of a it, it limits their ability to 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 not be able to be objective in terms of getting to the right uh, right uh, right conclusion um, you know I think it's interesting um, you talk a little bit about the climate change uh, from Glasgow but in the book you also talk about um, this example you give regarding uh, energy conservation right. and how that movement came about. Can you just say a few words about that? And I want that because I think where we are now, as we talk about climate change and we talk about what the world has to do, behavior is gonna be key. Right. And I think uh, the essence of this book is about the change we want, but for people to understand it, they need some practical examples. So just give us a few, say a few words about the energy conservation piece before we get to two last questions to wrap us up. Sure. Um, yeah, this goes to the point more generally that, you know, I, a lot of the focus now is on technology and innovation, as it should be. Um, but the question that always is, once you provide the correct technology in the same way that once you provide an effective vaccine, will people actually use it? Right. Um, and so it is the same with sustainable technologies. And so I talk a lot about the question of solar panel um, adoption and some of the cases of failure and success, which are really nice to hold side by side. 
Um, and in the cases of success in Germany's sort of standout in this regard, um, they adopted a strategy that was, you know, they didn't have a scientific theory of it, but fairly intuitively, they started using a kind of complex contagion neighborhood-based strategy um, to target these sort of early adopting neighborhoods. They sort of, you know, incentivized and financed and ultimately built within different residential neighborhoods. And the data that come out of this are really satisfying because you can, I mean, you can actually see from, you know, a aerial view and then also from the data that adoption of solar panel housing doesn't spread by virtue of economic incentives. It doesn't spread by virtue of availability of technology. It spreads literally from household to household through neighborhoods. It's like a straight, good old fashioned spatial contagion. Why this is so interesting, um, and this goes back to kind of the big picture of, of what the book is about, is when you look at the history of stuff spreading, you go back to like the 1300s, we have these data like the bubonic plague, and it spread across Europe like a physical wave, right? It spread from region to region to region. And so we say, oh, that we call that geographic or spatial spreading. And if you look at the spread of Christianity, it has the same kind of contagion dynamic where it spreads from region to region to region. So the inference was made, and I think reasonably so, that, well, disease like the bubonic plague and beliefs like Christianity all spread the same way. They're all kind of spreading spatially. So once diseases can then spread across airplanes, and this is like the big worry with when the pandemic started, it's why people shouldn't get on airplanes. It's because you got a bunch of these long distance weak ties spreading all over the planet now, and each one becomes a propagation vector for the disease, right? And we say, oh, so these long distance ties that are, you know, jump across spatial, you know, distance um, are really effective at spreading diseases and information. Probably it should work the same way for everything too. Right. And those, that was kind of the state of the art, 1970s, 80s, 90s. So what's so interesting is that when you fast forward to, you know, 2016 and you're looking at the spread of um, solar panel adoption in Germany, it, it looks like the bubonic plague. Right? It's like it's spatial in a way that we think in our modern age, things shouldn't be spatial like that. But it really means that like these kinds of behavioral contagions don't spread like diseases. They spread in a way that's really different and that we can track now in a very concrete fashion. That also means strategically that when we want to initiate these kinds of cascades, we actually have to build, and this is kind of the examples you brought, you, you had me talk about earlier with World War I and Arab Spring, we can actually build kind of local neighborhood clusters that are very effective for spreading across entire communities that across community boundaries from province to province. And what was so interesting in the case of Germany is like, well, the incentive structures were different across different provinces and the marketing and advertising, given like political um, um, motives were different across different provinces. But nevertheless, the spreading pattern didn't respect those differences. The spreading pattern was spatial. So neighborhoods and communities that were across you know, different state or province boundaries um, infected each other with solar panel adoption. And so you saw this spreading uh, really obeying the laws of, you know, social and network contagion rather than, you know, the governance, you know, municipalities that, that, that the households happen to be in. Um, and that winds up being, I think, a very powerful lesson because when you generalize it, now in the last, like, you know, 15, 20 years, we have data from Japan, from uh, neighborhoods in the U.S., from neighborhoods in uh, Britain, um, and from lots of different places in Europe as well, where every single data set that's ever been collected on the spread of solar panel adoption shows that it's a spatial spread from household to household. Um, so it's, it's this consistent finding that kind of reiterates time and time again, the basic lesson of complex contagion, which is you need to look at these clustered neighborhoods as the seed points for initiating diffusion that can ultimately transform an entire nation. What I think you're saying, uh, Damon, is that as we develop public policy to address major issues like climate change, like, uh, you know, uh, energy, energy access and inequality, we need to look at the data. We need to think about how we design the policy and let it be driven by, you know, the clusters and the networks, if you may. Um, but before we end, um, just one little tidbit here from the book, six degrees of separation, now that the data exists, would you now want to say that that, that but sort of an empirical study from back, you know, a couple of, I don't know, 50 years ago, whenever he did the study, uh, is it the case today that it is indeed six degrees of separation between you and I? Yeah, so the, so the result is, the results, this is something I talk about in the book generally in the end when I talk about 
groups and wide bridges. Um, but we have a we have a very I think exciting scientific result on it that was published in Nature this summer, which is like the technical side of my answer to your question. Um, so if you don't mind, I'll I'll, I'll go into some of that just to, sure. just for a minute. So yeah. what's so interesting about the result um, that we found is that. Six degrees of separation, what it is, is it's a measure of the number of steps to get from anyone on average to anyone else. You know, he was measuring the U.S., not the world. But OK, so that that was the idea. Um, and I talked in the book about why it was clever. It was a super clever design, like really ahead of its time. Um, but if you think about what a degree is or what a step in the network is, it's basically a chain for someone to send a message to somebody else. That's what it is. So what we're really talking about in terms of steps or degrees of separation is like information. How does a piece of information spread? How many steps does a piece of information need to go through to get from someone to some other person arbitrarily chosen? What we're really talking about in that respect is the spread of a simple contagion. So now the question, when you say, Damon, how far are you and I from each other? Um, you know, or would, would we have been if we didn't meet <laughs> just now? Um, then the question really is, well, are we talking about for the spread of a piece of information from you and your close family and friends to me and my close family and friends? Or are we talking about joining up a social movement? Are we talking about the mobilization of the civil rights movement in the 60s or you know, freedom summer participation or joining the Black Lives Matter protests, right? What's the degrees of separation for the spread of that kind of participation or you know, some solar panel or some other sustainability initiative that you and your friends are adopting? How many steps does it take to get to me and my friends? And then the question isn't one of spreading information. Then the one is, is actually the propagation of adoption or the change in social norms. It turns out the measure of network distance is, is specifically um, and uh, provably different when we're talking about the spread of complex contagion. So what we did was um, basically construct an entire new measure of social distance, which we call complex path length. And then we show that based on that, when you're looking for the center of the network, and this actually becomes kind of a deep and subtle point, um, but one of the most scientifically profound points about all of this work is at the center of the network, if that's what we think like the highly connected influencer is, that's assuming simple contagion. But if we're assuming complex contagion, the center of the network, where we can actually say this is the part that's connected to most other parts, actually moves out to what we perceive to be the periphery. And so that's where from our targeting strategies, we can say, okay, we can now find a complex center, which before just seemed like it was somewhere out in the periphery. It's actually a very specific neighborhood. Now we can pinpoint it. Now we can target it. Interesting. I would love to get an eye on that paper. And, and oh, certainly... all the all the papers are on the, the network dynamic. The network dynamics group is my research group. Yeah. All the papers and all the data and everything is is up there for free download. So that's interesting. So so the world's global challenges: we have climate change, we have universal access to energy, we need to build more infrastructure for providing electricity to people around the world. Uh, we have to tackle the issue of um, water poverty. We have to tackle the issue of homelessness. We have all of these, what I would call wicked problems. And um, it's perhaps safe to say that based on what you've said today, that uh, the idea of understanding how contagions, complex contagions work can help us to address some of these, uh, some of these challenges. Damon, last question is you've worked with some of the world's largest companies. You've worked with Amazon, Microsoft. You've worked with uh, you know, Smithsonian. Uh, NBA, you work with the U.S. Army, National Academies, you name it. What would you say for a business leader listening to this conversation who hasn't worked with you yet? What would be one of the key benefits they would get from understanding and applying the ideas of network dynamics as they design their business models for the 21st century? What have you learned or gathered from your conversations with all these big firms that you think a small entrepreneur could benefit from understanding network theory? Yeah, I think the most important lesson to take home from this is that if we get it wrong, it's not just that our innovations will fail, it's that they can backfire. And that's a really important lesson to take home because I think that most people think, well, look, you know, sure, there's the viral model, but then there's also this complexity model. Why not just do a kitchen sink approach and like do everything, right? If we have enough money from our marketing budget, or everything. And this is why I give the cautionary tales of like Google Glass and Google Plus, right? Because trying to do everything and specifically trying to go hugely viral winds up in both those cases with, you know, the glass product, not just the product line being shut down, but actually huge social backlash and the reputation of the company ultimately being hurt. 
um, by virtue of the strategy they adopted, which was like this viral influencer strategy. They could have adopted another strategy that would have been more effective, but the idea was, you know, just go, you know, guns blazing. Um, and Google Plus is another example of something that could have worked, but they tried this like massive viral strategy and then the product line got shut down um, in 2019. And so I think that particularly in the space of sustainability, um, where the stakes are so high, it's not just a product line we're interested in. It's like a worldwide movement toward you know, sustainable technology and behavior. It's really important to do it intelligently um, because, you know, done wrong, it just actually sets the movement back. And I think that's the, probably the most important lesson to take home. So going viral is not always a good thing. Be careful how you go viral, right? Yeah, yeah certainly. <laughs> well, before we end, uh, my last question for you, as every author who's been on this uh, podcast, I've asked them the question, uh, what's next? Uh, what's in the works? Uh, tell us, tell the audience, and, and promise that this will be the first podcast you will visit when you release your next book. What's <laughs> next? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so... Basically, the way that the book ends is I start talking about the implications for what I call, you know, bias and, and the issues around uh, political polarization. Uh, but more generally, you know, why is it that we have such a hard time making good decisions when people with, with good ideas are in the room? And so that's really what the, the next book is about. It's about this, this topic of what I refer to as collective intelligence, but really about the approaches we can adopt to improve systematically the kinds of decisions we make in organizations and to sort of gather the right kinds of knowledge. And there are some kind of surprising, I would say the, the most interesting and exciting finding that really is the center point of the book is that when you change the, the network of the conversation, you can predictably change the collective answer people come to. And it's, it's counterintuitive because you think, well, people are people, the same people having the conversation. Why should changing the network alter what they think? But it, it manifestly does alter not just what they think, but how they think. And I, you know, this, there's been a discussion in the last couple of decades about the wisdom of the crowds after Sir Wiki's book. But what you're talking about there is basically just taking the average of a bunch of people. And the argument has been, look, social influence is a bad thing. You just want to kind of take an average and, and that's the cleanest way of doing it. And um, not only is it wrong, but actually it's preventing a lot of organizations and even, you know, at the national scale in terms of public debate um, from really achieving its highest, its highest potential. And so that's the, the sort of the new direction I'm going with. Well, looking forward to reading the next book. Our guest has been Damon Santola, professor in the Annenberg School of, for Communication, Department of Sociology and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the director of the Network Dynamics Group. Damon, it's been a pleasure having you. My pleasure. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.